Philip, when was the first time that you thought of one of your parents as a person? So I remember um, pretty, I don't remember the exact moment super well. So when we were younger, my family would go to church on a pretty regular basis. Or my mom, my brother and I would, we would all go, my mom, dad, brother and I on Christmas and sometimes on Easter. I noticed at some point that like, oh yeah, my dad doesn't go to church regularly. And then I noticed that when he was in church, it didn't seem like he was super comfortable with it or that he loved being in church or anything. Like he wasn't as into singing the hymns, which was funny um, as I thought about it more because his mom had been really religious. My grandma was pretty religious and my grandpa was actually a priest for the Episcopalian church. I I can't have been that old, but I remember thinking like, oh, why, why is it that dad doesn't like this or dad isn't as into this? <laughs> when was the first time <laughs> you thought of your parents as people? All through when we were kids, my brother played Little League Baseball in this part of Atlanta called Buckhead, which is this, you know, wealthy part of town. There are lots of mansions there. It wasn't where we grew up. But Ross played Buckhead Baseball, and one summer we went down to South Georgia to the beach for this tournament, and all of the parents were, like, kind of drunk, and they were eating pimento cheese. And I just remember my parents saying, oh, you know, we live in a bungalow in Morningside, and I was just like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, I have never heard you use the word bungalow to describe our home. Like, who are these people? We, you know, we spend a lot more time on our college campuses now than we spend in our parents' homes. But it really hasn't been that long since we fled the nest. I talk to my parents a couple times a week and they'll update me on the puzzle that they're doing or what the final question on Jeopardy was last night. They fill me. They've been reconstructing a community sewer, and so I get the weekly update <laughs> about the battles between the neighbors, and then I tell them about classes. I try to check in on my brother, and then I just got a cat, so we have our cats, my parents' cats, and my cat talk to one another on the phone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my parents love to put my dog on the phone. <laughs> There's really just a threshold at some point where we start talking about the headlines and what we think about the news. And on this episode of This Way Forward, we're thinking about families and politics. To do that, we're bringing you conversations with our parents about politics, the kinds of conversations that can be hard to have on a regular basis, the kinds of conversations where we try to talk to our parents as people rather than as parents. I'm Carly Berlin. I'm Philip Kiefer. Thanks for listening. To start off with, you could just sort of tell me about how you came to think the way you do about politics. I grew up in a pretty liberal home when I was a kid. My parents were um, involved in the Episcopal Church, in the, in the very liberal side of the Episcopal Church, and um, were somewhat, I would say not not 
strongly active, but somewhat active in the civil rights movement. And, um, and then for a while, very active uh, when in the, like Native American rights uh, movement during the late seven, uh, I guess late sixties and early seventies. And then um, uh, worked with in inner city churches in the mid seventies. So, that's you know it's the the basis of their liberalism was um, kind of theological um, and uh, longstanding. It just was it was never even a question in my home when I was growing up. Um, so I've never and, and in fact I was never really exposed to anyone who was conservative until I became an adult. This is my dad, Kurt. He and my mom live in Seattle, where I was born and raised, but he's from all over the Midwest, really. And one of the things I admire most about my dad, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him for this episode, is that he clearly cares so much about understanding the thoughts and feelings of people who are different from him. I can't think of many other people of his generation who make such an effort to understand what are often referred to, somewhat hysterically, as identity politics why it is that people of my generation are often so angry about issues of race, gender, and other long-standing power structures that promote inequality. It's a process for him, understanding, as it is for everyone, and he knows that he won't always get it right. I'd like to emulate him when I get older, and so I called him up to talk about how he understood politics when he was my age. Were those political... um sort of conversations or was that political activism part of your life growing up or was that something you've become conscious of later? Well, sort of, it was just part of life, you know, like when my dad got out of seminary, we, we moved to um, Standing Rock, you know, which has been in the news lately, no. South Dakota. Yeah. And we lived there for, I think, three years. Um, and, you know, one might argue that, um, being a you know an Episcopal missionary in on uh, on the reservation there was um, and uh, not such a thoughtful liberal thing to do, but it was at a time when there was there's still a huge amount of poverty there, and the Episcopal Church was, as far as I knew, um, uh, putting a lot of money into communities there. So so there was, I think there was some good mixed in with some probably some bad, but um, that was just. That was just life, you know, we were like involved in, you know, my dad's whole, you know, that was his profession and we, you know, um, that was just it. I mean, there wasn't, there was no real difference between our day-to-day lives and then that kind of activism. So when you left the house and were in college and then after that, did, did you continue to be politically involved or... Has that come later? Well, I, I can't say that I've ever been an activist, but um, but I've chosen to be involved in things mostly professionally that were um, about community and about community building and about um, things that that have a you know definitely have uh, liberal roots. I have to admit to being a little annoyed by the the you know the kind of college activism of that sort you know like the you know I did civil disobedience training and I 
and we went and surrounded, I think, the federal courthouse in Denver and held hands and sang songs. And I don't really that think that had much to do with the U.S. was um, uh, operating in Central America. I don't think I don't think we we had an effect. So I think it's it's perhaps different right now in this moment, but I don't think it created much difference then. My parents aren't the kind of people who get out on the street and protest much anymore. I think they see why others need to protest, but at this point in their lives, they've decided to spend their energy on more local, tangible action, through their jobs and through volunteering. I think that's rubbed off on me. The protests I've been to recently have felt more like catharsis than action. I'm glad they're happening, but I also have a hunch that I might be able to do more good by spending my time at a school or a shelter. My dad also hopes that the work he does at his job will have a small but real impact on the city around him. So I develop um, public art projects associated with uh, light rail stations for the most part. And what we're trying to do is, I mean, there is a certain amount of it that is really just decorating. But, and you know, we don't like to say that but <laughs> because it sounds really stupid. But the 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 thing that we're trying to do is make um, these places interesting and comfortable places to be when you're, um, you know, waiting for a train or coming home at night or doing something like that. And uh, I just, I just watched this um, PBS documentary about the, about Penn station in New York and the, the sort of rise and fall of it. And it was this incredibly majestic place. And, and, um, somebody said it was about ennobling people's commutes. And I, I kind of like that idea yeah. a lot. You know, I like that. I mean, I think we're going to be, you know, if, if, if what, you know, if our normal, I mean, there's an awful lot of drudgery about just going back and forth to work and, you know, doing day to day stuff. And if we can make that better, then it then it adds to the you know collective happiness of the the region. You know, I, I I hope that there are cascading effects. That's what I'm getting at. Jumping back a little bit, you like when we very first started talking, you said that um, the first time you were really around conservatives was in adulthood, um, and I guess. I like. I kind of want to hear more about that. Um, I think of you as someone who makes such an effort to like get to know people. Um, like what, what it was like to first interact with that. Well, I guess, I guess maybe I somewhat misspoke. There were, you know, I went to high school in suburban St. Louis, and it was pretty redneck. I mean, there were it was a middle class neighborhood, but there still was a, a redneck part of it, and. Um, I just avoided that, you know, that was really easy to avoid. Um, and, I, uh, but in college, you know, what, the, what my first interaction really with it was when, um, uh, I got to know many, you know, I got to know the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the kids I went to college with were much wealthier and, and they came from families that, you know, were, of, uh, you know, where the fathers read the Wall Street Journal every day and stuff like that. So, so kind of like not the, 
you know, sort of redneck conservatives, but old mainline, like Eisenhower Republican type conservatives. And I had never experienced that before, ever. And uh, I, you know, I mostly didn't, you know, didn't argue. I, you know, I was, I was kind of out of my element when I went to college and, you know, my, my family was solidly middle class, but not upper middle class. And, um, I, I just, uh, I, I didn't quite know what to do and I was pretty intimidated and I, so I mostly didn't say anything, you know, <laughs> I didn't take people on, um, just because it was, uh, you know, there was, there were, there was, there were definitely some class issues that I was navigating and, um, didn't quite have the skills to do it, mm-hmm. but it was the first time I'd ever seen that, you know, and, and it was always with, you know, it was different than Missouri, you know, than, than suburban Missouri. Suburban Missouri was, you know, that, you know, a bit more like the, you know, the, the kind of conservatism I was running into was really the not very worldly version. Mm. And in 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 college, it was more like the um, corporate conservatism, you know, the the um, conservatism of of money. You know, so that was that was a completely strange beast to me. What I'm so surprised by is how many parallels I guess I'm hearing between your description of the things you were dealing with in college politically and what everyone talks about now it's like oh right nothing ever changes <laughs> i think the difference though looking back was that i can't say that things weren't polarized then that would be untrue and and certainly when when reagan was elected you know we were all panicking i had to register for the draft and i was just convinced that you know we were going to you know, then we were really worried about Russia, Soviet Union, and we were worried about nuclear war. And Vietnam wasn't that far in our, you know, wasn't that distant in our memory. There was that kind of anxiety. But but looking back, the difference between, you know, a, a Democrat and a Republican wasn't so big. And it it may be true that it's not so big right now. But it just seems big. I don't know when that changed, but it definitely changed. And as I'm saying this, I'm I'm also feeling contradictory because then you think about like things that happened to civil rights marchers in Alabama in 1964, and you know stuff like that. There was definite polarization. So maybe it, you know it is always the same. It just has a different flavor. I'm Barry Neil Berlin, Harley's dad in Atlanta, Georgia. My dad is one of those Reagan conservatives, like the ones Kurt was afraid of back in the 80s. He wasn't always on the right, but he's been a Republican for my whole lifetime. I grew up in a split household. There's a story we like to tell about driving around the neighborhood when my brother and I were little. We looked at all of the political signs in our neighbor's yards and, confused why we didn't have one, asked our parents, who were we for? 
They answered that mommy votes one way and daddy votes another. This was the extent to which we talked politics in my house when I was a kid. That has changed in the last six months. Now some of the most difficult conversations I have about politics happen in our living room or over the phone. I called up my dad to ask him more about his political story. I guess I, for so long, had just assumed that your parents were Republicans, you know, grew up in a small post-industrial town in Virginia. And I just kind of thought that you were a Republican because that's where you came from. But that's not really true. Yeah. And I... No, it's not true at all. In fact, I, I don't know that my parents ever voted for a Republican before Reagan. I came out of that, you know, more, more or less mirroring their beliefs and and then really had, had my awakening probably through, you know, graduate school and in business and some of the, the studies and reading and, you know, just my own intellectual awakening, if you will. And it was, I, I guess, when I was in my early 20s, much as you are now. Yeah. You know, when I really started to read, and, you know, you got to think back. I mean, there were some newspapers and magazines and evening news. I mean, that was pretty much it. Yeah. And you formed your opinions and impressions differently, or you went in the library and, and dug up stuff to read it and learn. It wasn't at your fingertips. And much of what your fingertips is at your fingertips is filtered by a point of view, and you know, that was probably less true then. And you know, I came to my realizations in, in my way, and you know, as you do in yours, there was really a question in the air about whether my generation, a young baby boomer generation, would ever do as well or better than their parents had economically, financially, whatever, and. Um, yeah, that's very much a refrain you hear today, too. And I, I voted for a change in a big way with Reagan. And I w- was part of what some would call the Reagan revolution of, of really inviting people of a lot of different political persuasions under one tent for the type of change he proposed for the country. Very positive, optimistic view of America. And it, it largely played out. And... Um, and like many people, I've more or less voted Republican ever since when John McCain uh, picked Sarah Palin as his running mate. It just showed me abundant poor judgment. It was a, a reasonable chance that Sarah Palin could have been president of the United States. And you think we've got a goofball in there now. It would pale in comparison to her. And I voted for Barack Obama in his first election. This time, as you know, I sat one out. And um, I just couldn't bring myself to vote for either of the candidates and figured we'd just accept what came. And I think there's a lot of people in America who did the same thing and probably a lot of people who, who might do differently on a do-over. But, but uh, nonetheless, um, that's how I played the hand. And, and, um, and here we are. I was studying abroad when I learned that my dad didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. With an ocean between us, we began what continues to be a heated debate. I chewed him out for making an individual rather than collective decision to satisfy his conscience. He replied that while he was surprised by the nation's choice, his work life, handling financial matters for politically diverse clients, had conditioned him to navigate through whatever environment presents itself versus a more idealistic approach. 
Maybe I'm too grounded in this reality, he said. What I've realized in the ensuing months is that my dad and I speak a different language. His vocabulary is one rooted in markets and capital and competition, while mine is framed by race and gender and class. We argue on different planes. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. Um, is, is it, I've asked your mother this, do you think it's the hope, you know, maybe of yourself and, and other people who, um, you know, kind of in the Bowdoin-type bubble, bubble, Padilla bubble, it's the hope that somehow all of this will go away and Hillary Clinton will be president? Do I hope that or think that? You, you think that, that that's, you know, deep down that's the hope of, of some folks on the left who are, you know, out protesting and, you know, being uh, pretty vehement in their opposition to Washington. No, that's not really on my mind, actually. I think it's yeah. more showing up in solidarity with people who are being made so vulnerable by this new administration. Um, yeah. And I think it's to giving them more voice, yeah, giving them a voice and just showing support and being present. And um, yeah, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I went to the women's march in DC, and so that was not that was for other people, but that was also for myself. Um, and it's it's not. I don't expect Trump to get impeached and for Hillary to somehow be in office. I think that's an entirely unrealistic expectation. But I think yeah. it's I think you're right. It's a fantasy. Yeah, it is a fantasy. But I think it's better to be out there and voicing opinions and showing support and solidarity than just sitting at home. Um, even well, I agree. And it, it, you know, I, I think it's very positive. It's very constructive. What, what, what I don't think is constructive is folks who are, um, you know, one way or another, you know, basically want to change the outcome. This is the outcome. Yeah, I don't yeah. honestly. I don't really think that people are trying to change the overall outcome. I think they're trying to change the yeah. smaller outcomes that are still in the process of being decided. Yeah, which, which I think is is, is classic um, American life. To, to you know to to rise up for the underprivileged and and um, uh, underrepresented and the like. You know, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I think you're okay. What's the scenario here? Doesn't mean you get used to it and become complacent, but you know, it it you can't react hot to the news every day. It just makes you crazy. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm reading the news much less frequently than I was over break, and even when I was in England, because I just don't have that kind of time anymore. But well, I also, you, it's you also watch the press conferences and all that make you nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think your mother is starting to tune it out more, and and um, you know it's hard to hard to determine what's the sideshow and what's the reality, but um, I guess time will tell. Anyway, I'm always hopeful. That's my nature. I'm glad that's my nature. <laughs> I think it's healthy, <laughs> but uh, but I worry too, and uh, um, you know it's. You, you're 62 years old. You put one foot in front of the other. You make a living for your family. You kind of keep your priorities on the things that matter to the people you love. And um, 
uh, in a lot of ways, it makes life simpler because you know I'm, I kind of know what I have to do every day. Yeah. At 20, it's much more. It's a much wider field. You know, you, you'll determine how you want to live your life. You know, mine is already determined. Yeah. And um, I love that you have all that in front of you, and that you're thinking and exploring and you know. Um, your mother and I both trust your judgment a lot. You make good decisions. I don't know when you've made a bad one, and uh, you probably you probably will. And you know that'll be that'll be fine too. I mean, people do that, but but um, so you know, for for us, it's just kind of fascinating to watch how how you develop. It's beautiful. Thank you, thank you for always encouraging me, even if we disagree. We we might disagree, and I I think I've tried to share with you that I think we disagree less on on outcomes than we do on methods. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, and and you know it's not for me to lecture you, but I may remind you to offer you something to read every now and then in the way that you do, babe. But, but, yeah, no, please do. We're, we're both broadening our perspectives. of our homes differ, but Carly and I both come from traditional nuclear families, the kind you see in the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Mom, dad, two kids, just without the dinosaurs or robot maids. The kind of families that pop culture loves to tell us are typical. Anyway, we wanted to get a different perspective, so we invited our friend Kinsey Morrison to interview her mom, Karen. They're from Louisville, Kentucky, and both worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign during Get Out the Vote week. Before that, they were longtime advocates for marriage equality. As a freshman in college, Kinsey spoke outside of the Supreme Court at a rally in 2015, before the court legalized gay marriage nationwide. After the court decision, her two mothers, who had been engaged for 20 years, were finally married. Here's Karen. One of my mentors and, and the best boss I ever had, Betty Presley, who said to me, uh, she said, you know, when I walk in the door, I have three strikes against me before I open my mouth because I am African-American, I am a woman, and I run a nonprofit. And uh, I feel sort of the same way. I'm, a, I'm not African-American, but I'm a lesbian, I'm a woman, and I run a nonprofit. Um, and so in some ways, I have three strikes against me in terms of people taking me seriously, um, in terms of getting the same respect. And I know when I started in, in the current organization I'm with, um, the highest paid person was the only man in my role. Um, but today, um, I think I'm the highest paid person. <laughs> so it's changed uh, because I just, I, I've always felt like as a lesbian and, and as a woman, that maybe I had to work twice as hard to be thought half as much and certainly as a parent as as a, a gay parent i thought i had to be you know twice as good i work twice as hard as any straight parent to to gain the respect that they would get without uh without much effort at all and so i was willing to do that because that's kind of my approach if that's what it takes that's what i'll do so 
I think women do have to work harder um, to to be taken seriously and to be paid equally. Um, and I I just think that's that's my approach has been okay. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the best parent I can be, to be the best um, professional I can be, the best friend I can be, the best you know whatever role I'm, I'm in. And and I think that well I, I'll tell you a story something that happened about an hour ago. I was talking uh, to a friend who said that she was talking to her granddaughter. And she said, um, I didn't have the advantages that you have with somebody really supporting me through college and helping me, uh, encouraging me. But she said, you know, I know someone um, who whose mother died when she was 17 years old and she rented a room on her own and she paid her own way through college. So I don't really have any excuses either. And when I realized she was talking about me, I was like, wow. And she said, you know, I, I kind of put you on a pedestal. Um, and I just I thought, you know, if I can inspire a kid, and I do mentor high school students, um, and they know that I'm, you know, I mean, I don't apologize for having uh, a partner or, you know, I don't, I don't announce the uh, first thing that I'm gay, but I don't apologize for that. I'm just, again, unapologetically who I am. And if I can as a representative of the gay community, as a representative of women, as a representative of nonprofits, uh, as a representative of parents, whatever, if I can set a good example and I can encourage kids that went to the same underprivileged high school that I went to, that you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. And just like I told you when you were little and you said you wanted to go to Harvard and your other mom said, can't afford it. And I told her, don't ever say that again. And look what happened. You rejected Harvard and uh, you're at Stanford, which I would argue. I think it's even more expensive. But, but, but no, I. Yeah, but it's the best. I mean, but if you but if if you set those obstacles in your way and say, well, this is this is as high as I could reach. It's like if it's like you reach you talk to a whole group of people and you say, raise your hand up as high as you can. Try this sometime. Raise your hand up as high as you can. They do it. And then you say, raise it a little bit higher. They all raise it a little bit higher. Well, I try to raise it that high the first time. I mean, that's because as a member of, of any minority group, you know you got to reach farther and run faster or, you know, work harder to to be successful. Yeah, to be taken as the same. No, well, that's one thing I've to, to even. And that was as I was yeah. explaining to a, a young friend last night, you know, if you start out in a sprint, um, you know, a 200-yard sprint, and you start out 50 yards behind, you know one of two things is going to happen. You're not going to win, so why bother? Or you're going to have to run like hell. And so when somebody does run like hell and they reach the wall at the same time as somebody else, who started 50 yards ahead, then that's why that minority maybe deserves a nod of, uh, you know, like the whole affirmative action uh, concept uh, because he or she did not start out on the same line in most cases. Not to say that it's all about ethnicity, but when you've had what they call, I think it's called 
adverse childhood events, um, whatever that is, you know, having parents you know, living in poverty or parents who are addicted to drugs or whatever it might be, when you experience those things as a child, you don't start out at the same start line, but nobody's going to move the finish line for you. You know, I mean, they could, they could move it back and say, well, we don't expect you to go as far because, you know, but I want to aim for the the best finish line I could get to. And, I think and the most important part of that for me was being was being a good parent. That's still the toughest job I've ever had, uh, the toughest job I ever will have, the job that's most important to me, the one that keeps me awake at night, uh, <laughs> the one that I don't think I'll ever get quite right. But, you know, I've got three phenomenal kids, so I must be doing something right, even when I feel like a failure. Well, no, I think you definitely have um, overcome stuff I just can't even imagine and ensured that I didn't have to. Um, so I'm really, really proud of you um, and really proud of everything you've done to move forward a lot of communities that you care about. So thank you so much for talking with me. I love you. I love you too. This Way Forward is created in collaboration with the Bowdoin Commons and is produced by Philip Kiefer, Wiley Chang, Ben Miller, Cameron Tretavian, Edward Lee, and me, Carly Berlin. Music is composed by Sam Kizavat. A special thanks to Yvonne Chan, Aisha Khan, Jessamine Anderson, Kate Berkeley, and Catherine Sims. Check us out on SoundCloud and Facebook. We'll keep you posted on upcoming episodes. Let us know if you have ideas for future stories.